0: You are listening to When Policy Meets Practice from JFF, where we delve into the practical realities of education and workforce development policy with practitioners on JFF's Policy Leadership Trust.
1: Hello, welcome to When Policy Meets Practice, a podcast series from JFF on the practical realities of education and workforce development policy. For this bonus episode, we'll be talking about the need to help students and participants in job training programs navigate their career options. The urgency is high here. The pandemic created an unprecedented labor market while wreaking havoc on college enrollments. As a result, millions of Americans face tough choices about their next steps in pursuing education to help them break into a rewarding career. To help us understand what's happening on the ground, I spoke with two practitioners who come at this challenge from different directions. Mordecai Brownlee is president of the Community College of Aurora, which is located in Colorado. Brownlee talked about how the college has sought to remain relevant for both students and employers, as well as what policymakers can do to help. For example, Brownlee described an intensive academic audit the college recently concluded. It led to the decision to
2: phase out 30 of its 100 degree and certificate programs our faculty made the decisions based on the mission and the vision to be a college where every student succeeds to, to make the hard decisions on what needed to be a program closure. However, let me also say we've added faculty positions while doing this work because we found where there was untapped demand that would truly assist us in being able to get students through the transferability pipeline and the workforce pipeline stronger. So we have been able to pivot our faculty, hire new faculty into more in-demand programs. that are still in full alignment with our accreditation standards. I think that's key. I also spoke with Peter Callstrom, the president
1: and CEO of the San Diego Workforce Partnership. Like Brownlee, Callstrom talked about how his organization is working to help people figure out their career paths, ideally beginning early when they're still in middle school or high school. Callstrom described the San Diego Workforce Partnership as a social impact organization, as well as an entrepreneurial engine, and one that isn't just dependent on federal funding. Less than half our
3: budget is now federal. We have a lot of state, city, county, private sector, and philanthropy. And that's allowed us to spin up brand new programs, test things, take chances, not fear of failure, and, and then really grow from success. And that's
1: really worked. I'll also be joined by Karishma Merchant, JFF's Associate Vice President of Policy and Advocacy. Karishma will join me after the discussion with Peter and Mordecai to help us make sense of what we heard. So I hope you'll stick around for that. But without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Peter and Mordecai, thanks so much for being with me. Great to be with you, Paul. Glad to be here. I want to start with you, Mordecai. Obviously, it's been a an eventful couple of years, I wonder what you're seeing at the college in terms of where job demand has moved and frankly, what students are interested in if it's changed much in the last couple of years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Paul. What I will tell you is, is I'll, I'll start with this context. So I've been in this particular market now for 14 months. Before this market, I was with us in San Antonio, Texas, with Alamo Colleges. I still think that the realities, however, have held true in both spaces. And that is pre-pandemic, while there were some workforce challenges, it was more about this, this belief amongst many. I won't say all, but certainly amongst many that we still had time. That we still had some time to put some things together. The senses of urgencies certainly were high, but it was not at a crisis point in all circles to believe that there would be a workforce shortage of some kind that was coming. Uh, a lot of the research out there was speaking to uh, the 2030 cliff. And some of the spaces I was in, we were talking about the enrollment declines by 2025. What did that mean? This is where we see a lot of legislation that was moving towards the supports of concurrent enrollment, dual credit, and trying to increase those pipelines to improve credentialing. And so that certainly has been very fruitful and has helped many communities and, and many workforce partners. However, the pandemic has brought about something that truly has has been unseen ever before in, in recent times that any of us as educators and workforce developers can point to. And so now in this all-out crisis, I think there has been uh, significant, not only conversations, planning, but overhauling to speak to what has been some of the shortfalls perhaps in our academic workforce development pipelines, the development certainly of new partnerships with workforce partners, but with an increased level of urgency that I believe that really the weight is carried upon higher education to say that if we have an inability to be responsive, uh, that industry is working on their own solutions, that higher education may not be included in those solutions. Thanks for that. I I like that you started with time.
1: I mean, I think we all agree that time got a little muddled in in the pandemic, including around this work. Peter, you work with both employers and and institutions of of higher education. How has this kind of acceleration impacted your
3: work? In every way. On the employer's side of things, uh, as we see across the country, employers are looking for workers in unprecedented numbers and ways and just cannot find the workers to match what they're looking for. So we're having to be even more active in that space in order to reach employers, to to have them consider applicants that don't have the traditional routes through education oftentimes and uh, to get them comfortable with credentials and other ways to get those skills like Byron August does with opportunity at work. And people don't always have to get that degree. They have the skill, they have the talent. And employers, I think, if there's an upside to what's occurred, may be more open to taking chances with workers with with different routes. So, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And on the workers' side... And the first time in the 10 years I've been doing this at the San Diego Workforce Partnership, we're having the hardest time reaching participants for our different programs. Before there used to be waiting lists, we would not have enough to go around. And now it's flipped and we're having a hard time finding folks who will enter or consider the programs because I think in the end, the stress on their day-to-day lives, because the disproportionate impact of COVID on lower earning folks and how do they pivot to find time to do training to get into the career that they want to. So, it's a real tough life choice when they just need to put food on the table and to get through. So, it's a really still unprecedented time. We're coming out of it because the economy is certainly much better, but how do we reach people who have been impacted in more creative and fast-track ways so that we can help them get the necessary skills to get their foot in the door and and onto a new pathway. And it's great to be with Dr. Brownlee because work and community colleges, in the end, we're in the same game, if you will. We do it differently with different approaches and different training and skills, credentials and scaffolding and so forth. But we have to be so aligned in our different markets and find ways so we complement one another. And that's so crucial because the community college
1: district is an absolute gem in our country, getting people into great careers. Peter, I just want to stick with you for a second. I mean, you mentioned... The change in demand, and that obviously mirrors what we're seeing in a lot of higher education, particularly the two-year space. And there's a growing body of research showing that a, a primary reason even, maybe even more than time and money, that folks are hesitating, prospective college students that hesitate to enroll, is the doubts about whether it'll pay off. The way I look at that more is just not being sure what the best pathway is. And right. given the the swirl in the labor market, that's not surprising. And it's a rational, that's a right. rational fear. Can, can you talk about whether you're seeing that and some of your work to counteract that to get good information to folks?
3: Yeah, and I think that's a real key empathic question that has to be asked and understood for everybody that we serve. Because if you are a participant trying to enter a program through a workforce provider, or community college, having to navigate that amazing array of opportunity is just overwhelming. And so we have to find really smart ways to make that process much more navigable. And that's in San Diego. That's why we actually, for the first time in our history of 48 years now, we brought in house career center services that are normally outsourced to an operator. And we've had good operator partners in the past, but in the evolution of who we are, and we've created some 25, 30 distinct programs in-house that we have been delivering now for years with private sector and philanthropic support and other public dollars outside of Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, bringing that together into a cohesive flow for a person who enters, and then they can get proper navigation through an online tool we built that gets them to a navigator who can then help them really narrow down what it is they want to do. So, if you're that participant and you've got 40 programs through us to figure out or however many through Dr. Brown Lee and all these other opportunities, how do we help them understand through a good assessment tool who they are, strengths, interests, interest and values, and then how does that map to a career that's going to lead to fulfillment? That's really, in our mind, the, the North Star. And if we can do that well, then they can navigate. It's so crucial. And we've put so much time into making a very confusing system
1: much simpler to to get through to find what it is they want to do. Thanks for that. Uh, President Brownlee, obviously, enrolling in community college can be overwhelming, particularly if you've been away from school for a while. Can you give us a sense of what you've done at intake early on, maybe even before they enroll, to help
2: students see that path forward? Yeah, great question, Paul. I would encourage every institution that's listening to this podcast to run an audit of your application uh, itself, the actual application and run a, a word count and process audit. Those are two separate things now. Uh, the reason I say that is because number one is we talk about first-generation families. Like here at the Community College of Aurora, 52% of our students are first-generation. And we're in the process of going through this work now. of uh, You're having to run an audit to see from the point of someone saying that they're interested in the institution to the point of them being able to complete an application. How many steps, how many clicks, how many screens, and as we talk about removing barriers, so many barriers lie in the application process for so many students. And if you're talking English second language as well, um, in in some of these households, again, another barrier has been pr- presented uh, that must be removed. The second part of that audit was a word count audit, or I should say readability score audit is really what I should be saying. Uh, because I will tell you part of what we found in Texas That was an opportunity. I served on the Texas Education Coordinating Board Applied Texas Committee. And so I was the chair, the co-chair for community colleges in the state. And we ran a readability audit ourselves only to find that for workforce programs and uh, for credit bearing programs that the readability score was upwards to a 14 grade reading level. Now, if you're talking about having an application for someone who may have an eighth grade reading level, As we talk about removing barriers, we already have a gap there that has to be addressed. Um, And so I think improving processes, improving the student experience, as well as these readability scores uh, to ensure that the systems that we're using to meet the needs of students, meet the needs of a workforce and certainly social and economic mobility that these students are seeking, that they have a fighting chance and that we have not been the problem, the key problem in this process. Thanks for that. Peter, you know, I think a lot about the kind of paradox
1: of choice when it comes to career navigation, and particularly in the work that you and and Mordecai are doing. How do you narrow it down? How do you how do you help folks in San Diego? You've got a lot of economic opportunity in that city, a lot of hot industries. How does your navigation tool get people moving in a direction without being too prescriptive? Well, it starts with pre-navigation. So, if you
3: have a good assessment that many many adults, many kids don't go through, they don't know their strengths, interests, and values. They don't know what makes them tick, what might be a career that would be satisfying. And if you don't have that, you hear that age-old thing of, I don't know what I want to do. We hear that in adults all the way through career, and, the, and we've uh, implemented a... A tool, and in partnership with a, a K through tw- uh, 12 district in our region that's very innovative, the Cajon Valley School District in El Cajon, California, that implemented an educational rubric called the RIASEC. It's uh, uh, the Holland Codes, uh, Realistic Investigative, etc. They've been using that in their K through 12 system that applies to adults. We embedded it into our career navigation, so people can go through a short RIASEC or a, a longer one, and then that's crucial. Then you have a better sense of, oh, I'm this sort of type, personality type. That would be interesting. And how does that map to careers? So, if you have the foundation, then you can help through the work we've been able to do to identify what are the in-demand careers and how do your RIASEC scores map to those. And then you can narrow it again. And narrow uh, is, is key because you can sift through those things that just may not really be for you that would not make you happy. In the end, we want a job that makes us happy and fulfilled. And it isn't always pay. It's around fulfillment. But it's around ensuring that all participants uh, have informed choice. And so, if you do that right up front, then the navigation, even though there's a lot of program options and ways to go, it can really help them figure out that this might be for me. And then in the end, workforce development is still very much a human practice. This is not going to be cured by tech. It can be supported with good tech tools, but we have career navigators who can help them really process that through. So, we've got good tech. We built an online tool on our site we call My Next Move, where you can navigate and explore all the array of careers, what they're going to pay, how long it will take in order to achieve necessary skills in order to get that career. So, it's that upfront pre-navigation, I think, that's so key. And like you would do a home budget. If you can really lay that out and understand what this really means for buying that new car or getting that new house, then it makes sense. But doing that with a professional, a career navigator who can really help you process that through, I think is essential in
1: this work. Mordecai, uh, you know, obviously tough choices for students in terms of pathways, but also for community colleges. I mean, we hear this all the time, community colleges are responsible for their community, but they can't be everything. And particularly given that they have limited resources, how have you, you mentioned the audit that you all have done, but how have you been able to
2: make sure that your programs are working in this fast-moving economy? There are several things I know for the sake of time where I would eat up the whole 25 minutes from us (laughs) all. But what I would say is there's three key things. Number one, academic audit now more than ever, community colleges, institutions of higher education, we had a habit of conducting academic audits. And I would challenge us to really review the processes and the integrity of these academic audits that we have been running all these years. Because if it truly was done with the fervor that it should have been conducted with in many of these markets and spaces, we would have identified years ago, the need for some of these program closures that have yet to take place around the country to be able to pivot students into high wage high demand opportunities to ensure their economic mobility and that workforce partners were feeling that we were being responsive so that 's something that we 're in the process of doing right now at the community college of Aurora. We have a hundred programs on the books we 've run a very intensive academic audit thirty of those programs now have been identified for sunset. I think it 's also critical to say because too often when we do this work we think about slash and burn and that approach to it being able to work directly with faculty, and that's what we've done at CCA, we've been able to work directly with our faculty and our faculty chairs to make those decisions. Our faculty made the decisions based on the mission and the vision to be a college where every student succeeds to make the hard decisions on what needed to be a program closure. However, let me also say we've added faculty positions while doing this work because we found where there was untapped demand that would truly assist us in being able to get students through the transferability pipeline and the workforce pipeline stronger. So we have been able to pivot our faculty, hire new faculty into more in-demand programs that are still in full alignment with our accreditation standards. I think that's key. Secondly, I would say that the conversations that we've been having with our industry partners through our advisory councils, from an accreditation standpoint, institutions have to have advisory councils for these programs on the books. The charge here that I would say to this audience is that let's move further from transactional and more to transformational. It's more than just having quarterly meetings, once a year meetings, maybe every six month meetings with these advisory councils. We've got to really bring these industry partners to the table and say, listen, tell us, would you hire somebody with this credential? What is missing in this curriculum? Are we thinking of a 16 week program that should really be a eight week program or maybe thinking of a two year program that should really be a one year program? We talk the language of work workforce development. However, our processes and systems don't necessarily reflect workforce development. I think the third element of that that we must be willing to ensure is, is that we are working with our K-12 partners in new and meaningful ways as we talk about blurring those lines, and that's great work that Jobs for the Future JFF has been in conversations about, about how do we reach the point of discovery sooner for students in that K-12 experience, that way they can hit the ground running much sooner, much faster, more efficient, more effective, and that's certainly the work that we're doing here at CCA. I love that, Paul, please, I, if I may, just please. on that
3: point, because the the word audit doesn't have to be a bad thing. And I like what you're doing, Dr. Brownlee, because if you really look at what you're doing and how you're doing it, as we have at the San Diego Workforce Partnership, we've audited our own programs. in, in the public workforce space, we have that eligible training provider list that works with community colleges as well. We got to audit all of that, the effectiveness, the return, the pay, and you got to take a hard look at it. But that takes extra work, extra auditing, and that can really pay off. And we've done that, and that's really transformed how we do those investments. So it's not just getting those dollars out there and hoping for the best, but really aligning those to priority sectors. And what you said about K-12 through is so critical. It's where we're putting a lot of our time and energy. We took all of our research and labor market information that we've done. We made career poster boards, an online tool, this stuck I mentioned. We have physical space within middle schools across our county region where kids get career pathway exposure throughout their education, not just that career day when they're in their 12th grade good luck to you, but integrated in it. And that, that uses our LMI, our research, because we've come up with creative tools. The schools can take it, plug it in, and make it their own. When we do that, then kids know themselves, like through a RIASEC or whatever assessment framework. And then they're on fire because then they realize why they're learning all this stuff and what that can mean for a career. They're talking careers, in grade school, middle school, all the way through. And that's what we need to do in a big, big way in the public workforce system. And workforce and education have to be so intertwined. And that not enough of that happens. And I think that's, that is, that uh, is again, a North Star. If we do that right, then someday as my, my buddy back home at Cajon Valley says, his goal is to put me out of business. I love that. You know, we don't need public workforce development and retraining because people are on their way. I would,
1: I'd take that any day. Just briefly, Peter, I was thinking of. I'm a higher ed reporter, so you know, when Mordecai tells me they're sunsetting 30 programs of 100 with faculty leadership, that doesn't happen. I don't need. To, I don't need to tell people that is very rare in higher education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The discourse has put a lot of the onus on relevance and transformation Mm. on higher ed. Right. I hear from a lot of community college folks. Sure. You know, we hear from industry. They want these short term programs. They want new on ramps. They're open to not hiring with the degree. We create the program and then they don't hire many of our graduates. It doesn't translate Mm -hmm. to HR. We know this. Can you give us a sense of what makes for good participation from an employer partner? What's the recipe for success and where you're seeing that sort of meaningful participation that we might have not seen as much in the past? Yeah, the word relevance really hits home
3: for the public workforce system. We've been around for decades, as you know, and and there's a lot of good going out there, but maybe there's some that's stale. And we have to really re-energize that truly transform it. Think of it differently. Don't just keep doing the same old thing. That's part of why we brought Career Center services in-house. We provide it directly. We don't go through a third party. Nothing against them. That model can work. But in our case, it made much more sense to do it because of the array of programs that we had. And then we can reinvent our Career Centers too without a contract modification or going through other bureaucratic loops that come with that kind of arrangement. And we can partner with schools. We can partner with library. We, we can partner with whomever because we hold that responsibility. And then we can be much more nimble and meet the demand that's before us and not do the same old thing. I'm not for a career center. That's going to be old school and where people don't want to go. We got to make it a inviting environment. We've got to get out of leases where the people aren't and bring the work to them. So we got to, we have an opportunity to reimagine that public workforce system within San Diego County. We have seven large career centers, two that are in jails. We partner in the libraries. And with this new approach, I see us completely rethinking how we go about this. It can't be the same old way it's been in decades past. And there's an opportunity for a lot of creativity when you do that. And a lot of new partners that may not have been encouraged to want to do it in the past, but we're there for them now. And it's going to be a whole
2: new day. Great points, Peter. You know, Paul, if I can just jump in there really quickly. One of the conversations we've been having with many of our industry partners, we're getting ready. We broke ground uh, about two weeks ago in a new building that will engage new partnerships for workforce development purposes. The conversation that we've been really asking of our industry partners is, is how about we change the marketing ploys and schemes that we've utilized previously to truly direct more individuals into these jobs through the college. And so one of the conversations we've been having, and maybe the listeners can try this in their markets and we can all figure this out. But what we've done historically, in my opinion, in higher education is is that we promote The interest, the program, we then tell the student we have career services available for you to help you land the opportunity. And then it's still not assured at that point. What does it look like if we bring industry to the front of the line along with us? And really, this conversation is happening in some spaces through the term apprenticeships. But even in the apprenticeship space is still a limited amount of seats. What does it look like for us to then envision what these marketing opportunities are with bringing the industry partner directly to the institution and then saying to the student, if you want opportunities with us, go here. And using this as a true pathway onboarding opportunity for students where they feel deeply engaged and aligned with the opportunity of their career and their aspirations in comparison to going through that experience towards the end of their academic experience and then hoping to be able to place that skill set somewhere. Mordecai, I want to stick with you for a minute. I think it's safe to say your college is meeting its end of
1: the bargain in terms of adjusting for this moment. But a lot of this work takes resources. Working with students to help them on their career path is not easy. Can you give me a
2: sense of your most urgent priorities for policymakers to help you get this done? I think it's so important that as we look around the nation, that we have a hard conversation about the funding models in these respective states and ask ourselves that while we use the term workforce development, have we properly funded workforce development? And unfortunately, in many states and spaces, institutions are being called upon to do this work unfunded. And so they're having to strike the deals and the agreements directly with industry partners which that can shoestring an institution because it's so expensive to keep up with perhaps the technologies or the equipment demands with industry. And so they are making initial investment. But you have to talk about sustainability, which is a whole nother conversation. Then we get into some of these spaces to where some states are grant funding workforce development. However, we also have to think about what happens as you try to sustain a movement of something in a campaign mindset. And so grant funded two-year, three-year, one-year opportunities, by the time you've started up and the public is then aware, the money has now concluded, and then what is the institution and the workforce partners left with? So, I think legislatively, we need to have hard conversations, just as we've done with developmental education, around workforce development funding. A yeah, great point. I think that we saw
1: some of that sustained change being lacking with the tact grants during the Obama era. The money goes away. Things change. Peter, last thoughts from you. I mean, you see both sides of this workforce Mm -hmm. education puzzle. What are some policy fixes that could help?
3: Well, getting WIOA to the finish line would be great, and unfortunately, that's become very politicized, and that's a shame because the changes in the revised bill in the summer were pretty light. I'd, I'd love to see it really, really rethought, and I don't know if Congress has the appetite for doing that, but for those ears that might be open to it that, if done right, can be a transformative thing for our work. The the funding has not nearly met the need. And that's a shame. would have had a huge investment in Build Back Better, of course. States are stepping up. In California, we've seen a a big investment in the work. And I think, uh, at least in my experience with one public workforce board, there are other funders out there. You just have to make your case. 10 years ago, we were like most workforce boards in that we were all DOL. And so you were that intermediary bank, if you will, and getting the dollars out to your community partners. But we've gone from that to less than half our budget is, is now federal. We have a lot of state, city, county, private sector and philanthropy. And that's allowed us to spin up brand new programs, test things, take chances, not fear of failure and, and then really grow from success, and that's really worked. We have wonderful philanthropic partners like James Irvine Foundation, Strada Education Network, Rockefeller, and many more who really step up and see that we're social impact. We're not just a workforce board. That's part of our business, but I really see us as being this entrepreneurial engine in our region to try new programs, partner with community colleges and CBOs and private sector and make things happen, not wait for that next infusion or formula dollar. So those other states that prohibit workforce boards from being a direct service provider, rethink it. I think there's a better approach. You don't need to have this intermediary. I think being a C3 is crucial. That's uh, allowed us to be able to be independent with connection to our elected officials, but we're a social impact organization that happens to be a workforce board. And I think that formula can... And should be more throughout the country because we cannot rely on the federal government to do it all. There's many other partners, but if you don't have the freedom to go out there and build it and take chances, then you're going to be stuck in that old school model that is not relevant
1: anymore. Well, I want to thank you both for talking about this topic. I think it's one that connects with a lot of the priorities for this country right now. So I know I'll be watching Community College of Aurora and the San Diego Workforce Partnership to see what happens next. Thanks for boiling it down for a half hour here. Thank you, Paul. A pleasure, Paul. Thank you for your work and really messaging to the, the country. It's valuable. Well, thank you. Thank you. Alrighty, next up is our sense-making segment with Karishma Merchant, coming at you right now. Alrighty, I'm speaking with Karishma Merchant, JFF's recently brought in uh, Associate Vice President of Policy and Advocacy. Hello, Karishma.
0: Hi, Paul.
1: Good to see you. Good to see you. And you're with JFF, I think about six weeks. You recently were with Senator Tim Kaine, is that correct?
0: Yeah, I was his senior education and workforce policy advisor for about eight and a half years in the Senate.
1: Great. We're glad to have you with us to help us make sense of what we heard. I've got to say I definitely felt a pretty strong sense of urgency from both both those speakers about the need to, to change a lot of what we're doing in education and workforce. Can you give me a sense of your take on that in this moment right now and what's needed?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think both Mordecai and Peter brought up a great case for how rapidly the economy has changed and how the COVID pandemic has accelerated the need for the workforce system to keep up. The federal government is making big investments to really address changes or challenges, I should say, like climate, manufacturing broadband, but we also need to really be cognizant of the workforce that goes along with those investments.
1: So obviously, there's more of that investment coming, but we don't have a moment to waste. I mean, I don't need to tell you that colleges are struggling to find ways to prove relevance to job seekers. Folks want to be retrained quickly for this economy. Can you give us a sense of some of the best practices in career navigation you'd like to see providers doing more of?
0: We're seeing an expansion of short-term credentials. We're seeing an expansion in competency-based education, but higher ed necessarily hasn't kept up. And that is where we really need to see the innovation. So I loved that Mordecai said they did an internal audit to figure out what are the courses that are meeting those needs? Are they meeting the needs of our students? And then the fear of faculty losing their positions you know, is real, but he found that actually we needed to hire more people to meet the demands of students. So I think that is something that is what we need to see more of. And then also just the innovation, the braiding of funding that we heard from Peter about how he is trying to think outside of the box and really blur the lines that we're seeing in the education and the workforce space. He is working with his K-12 through systems, to set up those career pathways and those career navigations in the middle school years. That's a really important focus. We can't, it's too late when someone is graduating high school to start to have those conversations about careers. We need to start them early on. So I think those were really insightful things that Peter and Mordecai are doing and that we're seeing that JFF is seeing across the nation with the practitioners we're working with.
1: I'm really glad you brought up K-12 because It turns out a problem this complex and deep in society requires fixes across all stretches of institutions. That's workforce, education, K-12, post-secondary, and employment. Um, Frankly, that obviously will require some interesting approaches to policy that we haven't seen. Uh, You mentioned the braiding of funding, but can you talk about some of the policies that could really help these two practitioners do more of what they want to do?
0: I think both of them hit the nail on the head with WIOA, right? That is the current system at the federal level that's been put into place to support training. But at the same time, we need to think about WIOA in a transformational way. Why is it that Peter is having to go out and find multiple different philanthropies and supporters Why is it that the federal resources he's receiving, maybe they're obviously not enough, but why is he having to think outside of the box? What is it about the WIOA system that's so regimented that it doesn't allow him to have that flexibility to meet his local and regional labor market needs and the needs of employers? So I think that's sort of first and foremost. I think the other sort of role that I see in the policy conversation is, We really need to invest in the infrastructure of career navigators, looking at the data, the professionalization of the career navigation. That is another big capacity that local workforce boards and even community colleges are looking to invest in. And it's not a short-term investment. It's a long-term investment into this field. The other thing, too, is when Mordecai was talking about auditing programs that they're offering. And then I heard Peter talk about this is a time where he's bringing the programs under his system rather than having to go to other providers. He is not no longer the intermediary. It made me realize wh- why are we having to why are they having to do that? And it's because they know what the value of the credentials and the programs that they're offering are to employers. And so we really need to look at that introspectively, I think, at the policy level of how do we judge what the good credential is? How do we judge what a good training provider is? And when I say good, I mean a quality that will lead to a portable and a stackable credential and a career path. I think that's the ultimate goal that policymakers had envisioned with WIO, but where it's failing to meet that need.
1: Obviously, Senator Kane has been a supporter of the Jobs Act, and the short-term Pell proposal includes some of that accountability that you mentioned with WIO. I mean, are you are you optimistic that there is appetite on the Hill to put some quality safeguards in that could really work from a bipartisan basis?
0: I think policymakers are thinking of it. I think that there is a desire and a recognition that non-degree credentials are something that is expanding rapidly and that we need to find a way to ensure that federal taxpayer dollars are being invested wisely and that folks are getting the credentials from these programs that will be valuable in the long term.
1: Well, Krishma, thanks so much. For talking this through with me. Lots to process. Uh, Just like Peter and Mordecai, you have a lot of information in a short amount of time here. And I really appreciate you sharing with us. Thank you. This has been When Policy Meets Practice. Thanks for listening to the episode.